Hello, folks, and welcome to the Unconventional Path, entrepreneurship and innovation stories and ideas. Hello, I'm Balaam Usitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Mike, today's guest on the podcast is Brant Cooper. He is a New York Times bestselling author of The Lean Entrepreneur and the CEO and founder of Moves the Needle. Brant works as a trusted advisor to startups and large enterprises around the world. With more than 25 years of expertise in changing industrial age mindset into the digital age opportunities. Learn more about him at BrantCooper.com. Bela, I'm really excited for to, to hear what Brant has to say. You know, when I uh, first got my, my, I was working on my PhD in the, um, in the 1990s, early 1990s, um, you know, lean manufacturing was a big thing, right? And how do we yeah. get our our factories to be less wasteful and and that always to me was something that was really interesting and then um you know, 10 or 15 years later when i started to, i was teaching entrepreneurship and that kind of moved into my area of interest um then this idea of the lean startup right using yes. some of the principles from lean manufacturing right came into into play and that really took over a lot of how we teach entrepreneurship um and now here's the lean entrepreneur and i'm you know really interested to hear how this concept of lean is evolving um and it's again kind of making it more relevant for people who are starting and running their own their own businesses so i'm really interested let's uh what do you think let's let it roll yeah sounds good let's dive into this one Hello, listeners. Welcome to the podcast today. Uh, today, I have a great guest, uh, Brant Cooper. Welcome to the podcast, Brant. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, sure. So uh, let me ask you a question. If if you're at a uh, social event, a non-work-related social event, and you get introduced to somebody, and after the introductions, they ask you, hey, Brant, what do you do? How do you answer that question? I typically answer it with, uh, I try to teach large organizations how to be more entrepreneurial. Ah, great answer. Great answer. And then they, and then if they say, well, what does that mean? What's the next paragraph? So the next paragraph basically goes that, uh, you know, the world is, has changed, uh, yet we manage all of our institutions as if we're still in the middle of the industrial age. And we're in the digital age now, and uh, and so we really need to learn how to manage uh, and structure work differently for the digital age. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I was reading over your bio and stuff, and and that looks like <clears throat> a, a topic you've been focused on for a, a little while here. Yeah. So uh, talk to us a little bit about, you know, how things in the industrial age, sort of traditionally, uh, they work. Well, like, so I, I, I like to have people man, uh, uh, imagine Henry Ford's assembly line, right? So it's, uh, he famously said you could have a Model T in any color you wanted as long as it was black. And uh, and his, really his contribution wasn't the automobile. Automobiles existed before. Right. It was his ability to manufacture an automobile to such a, at such a cost that the middle class could afford it. And, and that really that copied a million times, you know, really led to the boom in the industrial age. And so if you imagine if you're producing one vehicle in only one color, the most efficient way of doing that is having this very fixed assembly line where everybody is doing the same thing over and over again. Yes. And if you look at Taylor's science of 
management, the, that that's true in the white collar side of the business as well. So the white collar side of the business is merely an extension of the assembly line where everyone is supposed to be doing the same thing they did yesterday and you and you hire layers of hierarchy in order to manage people doing the same thing that we've already figured out. We already figured out how to build, improve, uh, manufacture, distribute, market, sell automobiles. So this is what we're gonna do. Yeah, yeah. But if you look at today, today is completely upside down. It's completely opposite of that. There's, you know, literally hundreds, if not thousands of options, colors, models, uh, that you can buy, you know, whether it's a gasoline powered or diesel or now electric. Uh, there's a lot of power that's in the hands of the consumer. They get to choose one or the other. They get to change their mind. They get to go to a different vendor, a different brand. And so instead of everything being known in the center of a company, like in, in Ford's age, now there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of complexity, even in trying to sell an automobile. And so the information really resides on the edge of the company instead of the center of the company. Well, so if you're managing your, your company in the same old way, top-down, hierarchical, command and control from the top to the bottom, and yet all of the information resides on the edge of the company, you're in trouble. You're slow. You're not customer-focused. You're not able to change based upon current conditions that change. And so really, we we this is an age of agile. We have to... We have to decentralize decision-making. We have to introduce new communications flows so that that knowledge gets from the outside and into the center and across the different parts of the company. And so it's, it's, a, it's a different way of thinking. It's a different way of working. And, I, and I, it's no coincidence that digital companies do better these days than, than some of the old companies. And the old companies sort of grok that they need to change, but they don't really know how to do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, change is oftentimes very challenging. Of course, uh, especially uh, oftentimes change means, at least for the short term, you're doing more work than you were before. It's so true. so the change seems kind of painful. It's like, well, wait a minute. I thought this was supposed to save me time and it's not saving me time. I mean, that's a great point. And so yeah. it's really one of the biggest objections I hear is we don't have time to do what I call exploration work, right, which is when you're faced with uncertainty and you don't know the answer anymore, you have to go find the answer. And so really my, my biggest challenge is convincing leadership that if you actually build learning or exploration modes into daily work, you'll make the execution work more efficient. Yeah, yeah. You know, as you were, as you were talking about uh, knowledge at the edges, it sort of reminded me of, of, I've done a couple of startups and I can clearly remember that you know, when we had three employees or there was six of us or a dozen of us, right around a dozen, we would have lunch together every day. And that was our communication vehicle. So all 12 of us knew exactly what was going on. You know, we can decisions were often made at the lunch table and, and that was it. But once you get bigger than that, all of a sudden, not everyone can make it to lunch anymore. Right. And you ha and you have to start sort of figuring out now how you're going to communicate, how you're going to have this two-way flow of information, not a one-way flow of information. So what are some of the things that you do with companies to sort of uh, help them get to this, this new place? So we tackle 
we usually tackle pretty significant areas of uncertainty and you could start smaller and, and look for lower impact, easier things to do. But typically the companies that we're working on, working for are going through some sort of digital transformation. And so they really realize that they not only need to digitize their products, but they have to change the way they're structured and managed. And so the first thing that we're doing is we're setting up teams. And I really believe that this is true all across a company. You really shouldn't have just individuals working on something. You actually put everybody on a team, even if their work naturally doesn't mean they ought to be on a team or they need to be on a team. Forming teams solves a lot of the communications problems. They hold each other accountable to work. So it's not like the manager has to sit on top of them, but just your peers, you'll hold them accountable to work. Uh, if somebody has a bad day, then, then it doesn't hurt the, the flow of the team. And then it's that team that has a very concrete mission and what the desired outcomes are and sort of the rules of engagement. So the guardrails for that team and uh, and the metrics used to measure progress. And the first thing that we do with that team is that we tell them they are responsible for reporting out their progress. It's not up to them to wait for somebody to ask them. And so you're establishing a cadence right from the get go that Here's the top line metrics. Here's the progress that we made. Here are the big wins that we had. And here are the challenges and the places where we need help overcoming that. And if you start giving that proactively to management, management is going to feel so much more at ease. They're not going to start using their imagination to fill in gaps with their own you know, fears or whatever. And it actually makes managers be more proactive, less reactive, more proactive and more strategic, which is what all management wants to be anyway. And so I think that it, it's one of those interesting things that that from the get go, you have to change that mentality that it's up to the individuals on this team to report their progress on a regular basis in order to put the managers at ease and build a sense of trust, actually, even between them. Yeah, yeah. You know, I can I can remember, I think it was in the 60s or 70s, there was several car manufacturers that sort of changed the way they did final assembly. And they did exactly what you're talking about. They had a team of half a dozen or a dozen people, and they did the final assembly for the whole automobile, as opposed to moving down an assembly line. Now, are there some tasks that this approach, some types of tax, tasks or classification of tasks that this approach works well for, and maybe others it doesn't work as so, so well? I'm sure there are. I mean, I guess I think that I what I'm really trying to capture is how to deal with uncertainty. And so if you're in very mm. if you're in situations where there's very low uncertainty still, where things are really, truly known, then uh, then I don't I don't think that this structure is is as important. Uh, personally, I don't see any downside for putting them on a team anyway even if it's low uncertainty work and they're just repeating the same thing, I still think that that team will hold sort of this social accountability in a way that it's more difficult for managers in a hierarchical sense to do that. Um, so I still think that there's benefits, but I also don't think it's required. And in the end, in areas of low uncertainty, the company's going to look very much like it does now. It's just that yeah. you've gotten there from a different direction. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we had a really big disruption here three years ago called COVID. And, and, it, and it was a great forcing function that really changed the way that, that organizations interact. Uh, and, and, but that was a forcing function. We had no choice. Right. Oftentimes, 
if you want to make a change, there's a choice, right? There is no there is no forcing function like there was in COVID. So talk to me a little bit about sort of how COVID helped or maybe it didn't help and are companies more open to these types of things these days? Yeah, it's a great question. So I I was was writing my book Disruption Proof during COVID and it and the book changed because of it, sort of not surprisingly probably. Um, but it started out as being, you know, here are sort of these 10 ways that I think companies can go through the type of change that I thought that they needed to go through. And then once COVID happened, uh, it, like you said, it's a forcing function. It, it, it sort of wasn't then really a, a choice. It was if you wanted to thrive or, and maybe even survive, you had to do these changes. And what was interesting is that organizations that I had worked with and some that I had not worked with, how did they respond having adopted some of these exploration or lean innovation principles prior to COVID? How did they respond? And they ended up becoming case studies because their response was, was often quite extraordinary. They were able to, with agility, make changes to very fundamental parts of their business because they had already sort of prepared themselves, the mentality to be able to do that sort of thing. So my, my take is, that there are still a bunch of companies that haven't really done that change yet. It's now kind of called digital transformation and people are, are sort of getting on board. But again, I, I kind of don't think that they know how to do it. They focused on the technology more than the people. And I think it's mm. the people that are more important than the technology. They often do these top-down changes, which I don't think work in this situation because it's really behavior change that you need to change. And that's you don't you don't change your behavior because somebody told you to. You have to be taught and practice this new way of change. And often these big companies hire the big consulting companies who actually suffer from the same problems yeah. <laughs> that the companies do. Right. So I, I think that there's a greater understanding of the need to change, but I still think that they're they're struggling with it. And it's because it is just really a huge undertaking if you think about some of these massive businesses. And to think that they need to start on the bottom floor and work their way up, that's a pretty tall order. Yeah. But again, you know, just like the startups that you were in, you start small and you figure out what works and then you scale what you learn and then you go back and say, okay, what changes do we need to make in order to make it to the next level? And so you really just have to take that same approach to driving change inside, inside of big organizations. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds great. So uh, is there a, uh, sort of, gee, I just had a question in my, while you were saying there, I got to ask him this question and it just vanished. I'll, I'll think of it later. So let's think about, oh, warning signs. So if I'm running, if I'm running a business right now, let's say I'm a CEO or a president of an organization or even a midline manager. And, you know, I, I have an organization that, that I'm responsible for. Are there warning signs that I should be looking for or, or characteristics that says, gee, I, I need to I need to change the way we do these things because it's clearly not working. Well, I, I actually think that what I hear from leaders, the reason why they start looking for things is because the desired outcomes aren't being achieved. Mm. And so I think that uh, I think that it's easy for us to define desired outcomes. Desired outcomes could be, you know, decreasing costs or increasing customer satisfaction or, or improving employee engagement or happiness. Um, revenue, of course, profit margins. I mean, so there's pretty classic, you know, maybe uh, market share, taking market share. So 
So those are the big ones. But then yeah. we start getting down to like projects and initiatives and products. This is where you often hear that the the outcomes are not very well defined, number one. And so it's a very kind of loosey goosey feeling afterwards that, this, well, this isn't what we expected. You know, yeah. there's sort of, we didn't get what we wanted. And, and so I think that that's a huge red flag. Number one is you gotta get better at defining what your outcomes are. And a matter of fact, in this day and age, they really need to be quantifiable. We're gonna improve customer engagement by 15%, you know, quarter over quarter or something. And the moment you can measure the outcome in that sort of way, then you can measure the progress towards that outcome. You can measure like, well, we're up to 5% and we think we can continue to improve. Where's our bottleneck? And it's you start asking the right questions in order to be able to get to that desired outcome. And suddenly what you can find is, is that by establishing the right metrics for teams, you can align those with what the desired outcomes of the products or the, or the projects are. And oh, lo and behold, the outcome of those will, will align with strategic priorities. And I've worked with some of these organizations that define that stuff so soft, so softly that in the end, you know, different groups are like, well, I did my job, it must have been them over there. Yeah, and you yeah. can tell that you have the wrong metrics if that's the case, right? Because as long as somebody can say, well, I was on time and under budget, you know, yeah, but we didn't right. get the revenues or we didn't get the right. customer satisfaction. And like, well, that that's not what you were measuring me by. And so I think a lot of it really comes down to metrics. And one of the great things about the digital age is you can measure pretty much anything. Um, you just have to put your your mind into the way of developing those the metrics of what determine the desired outcome. Yeah, yeah. You know, earlier we talked a little bit about forcing functions. And, um, you know, if you go back a hundred years, Henry Ford's time, um, if you were, if you had a manufacturing business in town, you just had to be that best manufacturing business within a hundred miles, because that was sort of your distribution. You, you weren't shipping product around the world. Now, of course, we, we talk about, you know, global interconnectedness, this ability to, to, to manufacture products in one part of the world and ship them all over the world. How, what kind of forcing function has that been? And, and what has that forced companies to do? Yeah, yeah, interesting. I mean, I think that there's, uh, I think that there's a lot that's gone over the last 50 years that led to that. Some of them positive and some of them not so positive. And so I think that if you look back in the industrial age again, you look back to Henry Ford and, and the, you know, the, there weren't all this, that, that many competitors, to be honest. Yeah. The competitors that were there, you know, eventually forced him to change that assembly line, even though he didn't want to, right? Um, but what you could measure, it was very, it was reasonable to measure financial efficiency. Am I getting more output for the input that I'm giving? Right. And so if it's a very well understood market, that makes a heck of a lot of sense for all of the labor and all of the materials and the parts and all of that. I want to be able to get more of a car than, than what I have. And that improves, improves efficiency. So. So we sort of stuck with that. And I think that we, we, we essentially took it too far and we lost the mission of the business somewhere along the way. So in other words, Henry Ford doesn't want to create more output for more based upon input just for the sake of output, right? It's in order to produce a car that the middle class can afford and enjoy and are going to buy another one, right? So that gets back to, 
to the mission. I wrote in my book, and it's sort of this funny thing that my economics professor said way back in college, you know, it, it, uh, you can use like a, whoever that Russian comedian was, you know, in Russia, when you're producing two million pounds of screws, they will make you one two million pound screw, right? And so it's not just the efficiency of output, it's the efficiency of output for that to serve its purpose. Yes. And we sort of lost that so that we become financially efficient. It's still going on today. Financial efficiency became the the only thing that big corporations mm. cared about. So that yeah, yeah. cheaper materials, offshoring, um, cheaper labor, and all of these things just to drive down the input cost, regardless of what you got from the output. And, and that's, you know, everybody sort of goes, well, that's all about the shareholder value and all that type of thing. And I don't even care about the shareholder value. That's it's definitely reasonable, except that it has to be in service to the mission. And that, and it's really interesting to me that we sort of lost the mission part of what that output is supposed to do. And if I tell you, listen, we need to maximize the efficiency of creating the value that we're trying to create. If I had, if you had to maximize efficiency for, you know, providing transportation from point A to point B, then that just adding that mission statement means, well, maybe we need to build into supply chain redundancy because what if all of these mechanisms mm -hmm. that are making our scooters to get you from point A to point B, we can't get any of the parts. Well, that, that means you can't solve your mission. Okay, so right. maybe I need some supply chain redundancy or maybe I need to onshore chips now in, in order to always have a supply. So just by, just by adding the mission statement back into what that financial efficiency should be for in creating value for our customers, I think we start making better choices. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in some ways it's sort of about balance, right? It's, it's, it's balancing all of these various things that we can measure and understanding which ones are the key ones and the important ones and which ones, you know, are the ones that drive us, as you said, so eloquently towards our mission. Right. So, I mean, you know, like Uber is not going to start flipping hamburgers if they find out that they can make more money with hamburgers because that's right. not their business. And a matter of fact, shareholders are not going to buy Uber because they've learned that suddenly, you know, Uber has got this amazing new way to make a burger. Even the shareholders sort of understand that contract. I'm buying shares in this company because I believe that their mission is going to make me a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in these types of organizations, uh, if I'm a leader in one, do I want to look for certain type of characteristics in prospective hires uh, or employees that, you know, are more attuned to being able to behave in this new way? Yeah, I mean, I guess I think that, I think that what we need to do is look at the middle management layers and not necessarily worry so much about you know, the, the, the solo pro practitioners or the younger layers. I think that younger people, I think, tend to want this more. They're, they're ready to be more entrepreneurial. They, they want to exercise their creativity and their inspiration. But I think almost all employees do. Yeah. I think that what I see in working with these companies, it's the middle management that is, is sort of, it's more difficult for them to change. And it's, it's really, it's understandable. I mean, they've advanced in their careers because of the old way, not the new way. Right. And so try to get them to do it the new way is going to be pretty rough. Um, but I think that 
we have not invested really in training in middle management, to be honest. As a matter of fact, when they were probably first hired as managers, they weren't trained in anything. And so I just really think that that's where a lot of the investment needs to happen is up-leveling the skills of the middle management so you can teach them how to manage teams that are working in a more agile, self-organized, fast-moving fashion. Yeah, yeah. So if I was reading uh, some, some information about you, and I think in your book, Disruption Proof, you talk about sort of five key elements that are important. Can you go over those with us? Right. So the, the the five E's are sort of describe this behavior that I think should become standard inside inside of our corporations. And the first is empathy. And so that's, you know, from a customer perspective, that's understanding customers deeply. It's not just going in asking for feature requests. It's not just, at, you know, having them fill out a survey, but really trying to understand what drives them, what their environment looks like, uh, you know, what their aspirations are. And of course, I think that needs to apply inside the company too for your employees. All these organizations that are creating these hybrid, you know, rem remote work policies without actually trying to understand what's, what their customer needs is absurd. I think that the one caveat I throw out there is just because you learn about your employees or your customers deeply doesn't mean you, that you have to go and solve all of those things that you that you uncover. But it but it certainly gives you. It gives you way more wisdom and at least you understand what the implications of your policies are. And so there's just no downside to understanding each other in, in more deeply. Yeah. The second one is, is exploration. And so that's some of the skills that I'm talking about where you're willing to test your assumptions. You're willing to admit when you don't know the answer. That's you know one of these things that leaders need to learn to be able to do. The moment you admit that you don't know, you're opening yourself up to learning and again, this is what's going to drive, uh, I think, increased productivity and efficiency is open up the, the world for exploring what's the right answer now that the world is in a different state. So the third is evidence. We want to use insights that we glean plus data to help inform our decisions. It's, we want to cut through our biases and what we really firmly hold to be true and allow the data to sort of unleash uh, what the, the, some of the different possibilities are. And it's a great way to overcome conflict is to agree on how we're going to run an experiment and the data that we're going to hold ourselves to. And so I don't think data should make decisions for us, but it certainly should be influencing. The fourth E is what I call equilibrium. This applies to not only allowing employees to balance their life out a little bit, um, but it's it's this idea that the amount of exploration versus execution that you have to do changes inside your organization. And so it's a it's a, it's sort of a sliding scale. It's a it's a continuum. It's needed everywhere. Exploration is not just for your innovation team. Your execution team needs it as well. They just need it a little bit less. So how can you uncover where there's uncertainty? Is it just hitting your numbers this quarter? Is it increasing satisfaction? Is it making your employees more contented? Where's their uncertainty in your business? And uh, ver and then once I figured it out, then I go into execution mode again. And again, you, this is just the common way startups work, right? They understand there's a bunch of things that they don't know yet. So they go figure it out and then they put it into the execution engine. But you always need to be checking in to see if there's continuous improvement or if there's new things that have emerged that, that, that uh, require you to do some learning again to learn how to overcome those barriers. And then the last E, the fifth E is ethics. They can't just be values on the 
on the website anymore, especially in the digital world where it's really easy to sit behind a keyboard and do things that end up being uh, destructive or not very ethical. And so I think we need to build that into our daily work. I think Teams is another way to do that. Teams will hold each other accountable to the values yeah. of the company as well. And so it really just needs to be built into, into our work. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wanted to go back to Teams for a second. Um, I think you said this, but I wanted to. I wanted you to emphasize it maybe a, a little more, if if you did say it, <laughs> and and that is that there's there's the goals within each team, but then there's the goal that all of the teams collectively need to achieve. Yes. Yeah. Right. right. So I didn't really talk about it much. I allude to it, and I write about it in the book. It's sort of a team of teams, right? So that you have in a non it's sort of in a non-hierarchical sense, but I get, there is a hierarchy there where you have, if you have a bunch of teams, you need this layer above where representative of those teams come together and they're responsible for ensuring that the aggregation of all the work that's yes. going on below is achieving whatever that larger ambition is. And the example that I heard about once for, was uh, this, this guy from Spotify that was telling me this. And so Spotify uses these things called chapters and guilds to organize their work in a way that is all team performance oriented. And also, by the way, individuals have their individual needs handled by a different reporting direction, which is, you know, skills and mentoring and life coaching and those type of things. So that's still happening, even if they're on these teams. But what was interesting is that Spotify, they had all of these teams with all of their different missions. And yet, the overall experience of the app was kind of clunky because of the way the different ways that they had implemented that. And so you needed to to create this higher layer that aggregated all the work and then could look at it from a higher level, a higher context to make sure that everything was still aligned and working function, uh, working properly. And you can imagine that then if you're doing that for one product, well, then you have multiple products. And so then there's another team of teams where, right. where there's a level of, okay, now we're at the business unit level. We have to make sure that all the aggregation of all of our product outputs is getting us towards the metrics that we're signed up to achieve this year. And suddenly all of these middle management that is you know responsible for these different layers of team of teams, they get to allocate resources differently in order to achieve their objectives. They're funneling new information up to the, you know, to the top of the company for things that where the company might need to change their priorities you know they're giving warning signs about factories closing in china you know that yeah. might affect you and so it ends up making those managers way more strategic they're not just managing individuals and fighting fires but they're actually doing the real work of allocating resources in order to achieve the the objectives yeah. and so i this is what I, I sort of call this cascading missions where you actually are structuring your company based upon this flow of of missions and again they're not all cross-functional teams and again you you may get to the point that a good chunk of your company looks exactly as the same way as they do now but this cascading missions allows you to deal with uncertainty and deal with big changes as well as small changes as well as to draw a straight line from people's work to the company outcomes which is just seems obvious to me but yeah, yeah. not not the way that not the way things that are these days mostly yeah. Wow. This has been a fascinating conversation. Oh, thank really you. Appreciate you being on the podcast. Is there anything that I did not ask you that that you'd like to share with the the listeners? No, I I I don't think so. I mean, I I think that you probably talk about your startups in the sense that what 
people need to be able to start small, right? Don't confuse the size of the, the first step with the size of the journey. It can seem overwhelming, yeah. but if you're just a, if you're on a team, then to me, see if you can form a team or if you're an individual, see if you can form a team of people around you, even if it's sort of ad hoc and informal. If you yeah. uh, are managing a team, you know, find some small uncertainty that you, will drive some amount of impact for you and start start teaching the team how to interact this way and, and give them some responsibility to make decisions. So there's ways to start small that actually can create momentum inside the organization for making the, the longer journey towards change. Yeah, excellent, excellent. So if people wanna find out more about you and the books you've written, what's the best way for people to do that? Yeah, so my email is brant at brantcooper.com. I encourage your listeners to reach out. I respond if it you know makes through my spam. And uh, Brant Cooper on all social media. Uh, if you want, if you're more interested in the in the large enterprise work, the medium and large businesses, that's MovesTheNeedle.com. Uh, and I'm also developing courses uh, on StartupBlueBook.com. So a bunch of different ways to uh, reach out, and I I really hope I hear from some of your listeners. Well, that's great. Well, thank you again very much uh, for being on the show. You've been a wonderful guest. Yeah, thanks so much. Great for for being here. Thank you. Bela, well, that was a really interesting interview with Frank Cooper. What were your big takeaways? Uh, Mike, there was a lot of stuff in there. Uh, let's unpack a couple of them. So one I think that struck me <clears throat> was sort of making sure that as an entrepreneur, a founder, or a leader of any organization, you sort of define where you're trying to get to. What's the goal line? What are you trying to achieve, right? How do, how do you want to, what do you want to achieve? And then the next piece is, how do you want to get there? What's sort of the path you want to take? And I think the path is sort of related in many ways to sort of your mission, because how you do stuff is, is really revolves around your mission. What are your guiding principles? What are the things that, that you want to be known for as an organization? It's not just reaching the goal line. It's how we got to the goal line. What was the journey like to get to that goal line? And then of course, you, you need to have sort of some measurements and 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 measuring is is very, very important, not not just for the leadership team to sort of know how the the ship is running, but also for the people who are doing the work and 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 the it's all, it's important for all levels because it's their feedback mechanism as well. So don't think of metrics or measurements only for leadership. It's for everybody. So when you design your metrics, you want them to be in such a way that everyone in the corporation, everyone in the organization, I should say, understands them and can and can measure their performance as it relates to those metrics. Um, so I think those were sort of the come a couple key take takeaways for me. What what did you think, Mike? Yeah, I agree, Bella. There was definitely a lot there, and I I, I really listened to every word uh, carefully. And this is one I might listen to again, right? Because there was so much there, but. Um, I was really drawn to this kind of conversation about mission. I was thinking, um, you know, kind of about the startups I've um, been involved with and worked with. And I was interested to hear kind of, OK, putting on your VC hat again is, you know, we always encourage entrepreneurs to have a clear mission. Right. It's something that we kind mm -hmm. of expect in the the pitch or in the business plan if you're kind of old school about it. But um yeah, when you really get right down to it, is mission statement really important for a startup for entrepreneurs, or is it a lot of is it a lot of crap? And kind of, what did you look for in terms of mission statement? Is it something that was on your radar screen um, when you were evaluating companies? 
So I think I think mission is is interesting or mission statements are interesting. Uh, almost everyone has one because, you know, in MBA school or in business school, we said, hey, it's important to have a mission. And and what I really look for is not what the mission says, but how do you follow it? How do you use it as an organization, as guiding principles? How do you use it to to guide the decisions you make, to guide you in in where you're going? That I, I that's the link I want to see. So I want to see the link between what the mission says and what your actions are, what what's your execution, what's your what are you doing in the business? I want to see that link. I I care less about what the mission is because oftentimes they're flower, you know, they're flowerly words, and and they're sort of they can mean four thousand different things to each individual who reads it. So what's important is how do you then take that mission and turn it into action and what's the link between those two? So that's what I look for. Cool. Yeah, I, I really agree. I think that you can have a great mission statement that really is unique and captures the spirit of the intentions of the startup, uh, of the founding team. But if you don't use it, if you don't spread it throughout the organization, if people don't know it or they don't believe it, it's useless. And the same thing, I've seen companies with kind of some mediocre mission statements, yeah. right? There's nothing really unique about it, but they they use it so effectively that it really does influence. People think, ah, I should make this decision in this way because it's our mission. And maybe it's not explicit, right. maybe it becomes implicit or it's a, um, it, it's just kind of a, a part of the culture in the background um, and it influences who they hire and the types of questions that they ask in interviews and how they evaluate their employees and all of these things, right? It just seeps into um, the, the operations of the organization. So, yeah, I mean, the winning combination is great mission statement that brings uniqueness to the table, that leverages core competencies, all these buzzwords, but that really means it makes you special. But but the implementation of how you use it is the second part. And you really, I think, to to be a, a superstar have to have both. And that's been kind of some of the things, at least in, in, you know, I have much less experience than you do, but in my career working with startups and being involved in startups, so we, when those, you had both things, it made it really easy when you had yeah. both the, the statement itself and you were actually practicing it. So I totally agree with what you're, you're saying there. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I, I thought the five E's were interesting. Did you have a, a favorite of, of his? You know, I, I'm always a little skeptical when there's five this or seven that, and I get <laughs> it. I do this when I'm teaching too. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. sometimes you you unpack some of these and there's some some nice substance there. So I thought, I thought some of these five E's were were pretty cool. What did you think? Yeah, I, I don't know if I have a favorite or not. A couple that I thought were sort of important were, I think exploration is important. And, and, and I go back to, if you're running an organization, are you a fast follower or are you sort of trying new things? And when I mean fast follower, I mean compared to your competition, right? There's a lot of great companies that just fast follow, right? They look at what they look at what's going on in the marketplace and 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 they and they follow, they follow that. They try to copy that. But there's other people that I think about that explore. They try new things. They they try new opportunities, new products, new services, new ways of doing things. And they give the people in that organization the opportunity to do that exploration, which I think, again, is important. And that maps back to your culture, hopefully, or your mission statement, I should say. Are you an organization that empowers people and gives them the opportunity to explore and try new things? So that was one that that sort of struck me, I guess. 
Yeah, I like that one too. And then I like the equilibrium one that you have to kind of um, do this idea of, yeah, we have to explore, totally agree, but we also have to execute at the same time. And you have to have some sort of, I like this word equilibrium, I usually call it balance, right? But it's, you have to have a balance between the strategic and the tactical or the strategic and the operational. So, yeah. um, so I thought that was really cool. And they're good, even though we always say, oh, we'll be strategic. I think that, um, that especially entrepreneurs, when you're, you have a million things going on and a lot of pressure and right, you're, you're really pushing hard to, to move to the next level. But it's really important that, that especially entrepreneurs, but all managers take some time to explore and to be strategic sure. and to, you know, again, you can do a great job with the current version of your product, but if you don't have the next version and the next version after that kind of in development, somebody's going to come and and imitate what you're doing and beat you to the punch. So it's this idea of having one one eye on this quarter and one eye on next year and right. five years from now to to really kind of to, to, to keep things in equilibrium. And even if the entrepreneur themselves isn't the person that's being strategic or being the operational person, that's such so critical to have people like that on your team right. that you can say, look, I'm the I'm the CEO. I'm focusing on execution, right? But I've got my COO that's focusing on exploration, my right-hand person or left-hand person if you're left-handed, whatever, right? right? But you've got right. this team where somebody's got responsibility for both. The other way around, I have, I've have worked with some startups where the CEO was really the dreamer and the visionary. Um, well, that's what I just said. Sorry, flip it the other way around, was really the nuts and bolts operational person. Right. But they had to have a chief strategy officer or somebody who is a chief of R&D or chief innovation officer that was, and the titles don't matter. I'm just using it as an example. But this idea that you have somebody um, closely uh, on your team, then they're 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 looking at that. They're making right. that a part of the right. job. Yeah. As, as I heard somebody once say, if you don't make your product or service obsolete, meaning you replace your existing products and services with something better. If you don't make them obsolete, somebody else will. Yeah, it's so important. And we've, I mean, we've both seen that so many times where, you know, it's the one hit wonder, right? They have a great product or a great service and they get it into the marketplace, which is always, it seems like it's the hardest part, but they ha they're they not ready when the competitors come in and start to do the same right. thing and imitate what they're doing and, and they don't have version two ready. Because they've already won that business. That's the hardest part. They've got customers, but right. they can't. Right. They can't. They can't keep up um, on the on the innovation side or the creativity side or yeah. the service side. So exactly. Yeah. What do you say? Great. We wrap this one up, Mike. Yeah, let's wrap it up. This was great. But thanks for doing the interview again, Balan. It's always great to talk with you about these things. Listeners, big thanks to you for joining us today. We hope you found this episode as interesting and thought-provoking as we did. And of course, if you have questions about what we discussed today, we're always happy to hear from you and we're happy to answer. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Hey, and if you like the podcast, tell your friends and also hit that follow button on your favorite podcasting application. So until next time, signing off from upstate New York. See you soon. Thanks. Great, Bela, from over here in Münster, Germany. We'll see you next time.